to Exodus chapter 22 this morning, Exodus 22. We're going to start at verse 16. We'll read through uh, chapter 23, verse 9. We're walking through the book of Exodus. We've actually seen quite a lot. Uh, If you believe in systematic expository preaching, then you recognize that there's something rich and full in each passage. Here's the beauty of systematic expository preaching. I don't tell the text what to say. The text tells us what to see and understand, what to know of the God who's revealed. So we're reading a portion of the Bible where God is giving laws to a specific nation, his nation, Old Testament Israel, which is the one time in human history, a blending of what you and I might think of as a church and a state. And behind it all, the laws here are meant to reflect the heart of God so that in Old Testament Israel, there would be a reflection to the watching world of this, this warm, compassionate heart of Yahweh. Much the same way that the New Testament church is to be a reflection of the heart of God's character into the world. So here we learn about a God whose heart is compassionate. We'll read from chapter twenty-two, sixteen through 23, 9. Remember, this is God's word. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your praises, excuse me, your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the the wicked. And you shall take no bribe 
for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Here's God's word. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we recognize that what we have read is your very word. It is written down for your people, and so we pray today that as we study it, you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your people. And we ask, Father in heaven, that you would again be willing to use a sinful and crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you read these laws with modern American eyes, I actually think it's very difficult to recognize how unique they were in the ancient world. I mean, they're not totally unique. Let me be clear. Other societies realized that murder and stealing were bad, that to take someone else's life would cause a lot of problems in the society. But you might think in in terms of, well, that's common grace when those who don't know the Lord find those things which are true when they find measures of good and right. And so there is a fact that many ancient societies had some vague, faint reflections of God's law. If you take a history class somewhere along the way, your teacher is going to take you and instruct you about Hammurabi's Code. It's a set of laws that dates to 1750s BC, which would basically be 300 years before the account that we just read. So a Babylonian king whose name is Hammurabi or his government established certain laws, and some of those laws sound very much like the laws that we find here in Exodus, lex talionis, that is the, in Latin, the law of the tooth, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which has led some scholars to go. You see what happened then, of course, is the people of Israel hijacked. They borrowed these laws from other ancient civilizations in order to legitimize themselves, in order to to make their, their God Yahweh seem like he was real. Is that what happened? No. No, there are similarities, but there's so many vast differences Both of Hammurabi's code and the Old Testament law affirm that punishment must fit the crime, but not for everybody. Fair trials, only for those who are of high class and wealth. So here is where God's law is so radical and so unique and so glorious. God's laws treat every person with general equity, young or old, men and women, wealthy or poor, powerful or weak. So here are laws that, that guard the weak from being oppressed by the strong, laws to care for the unborn, the woman, the orphan. The ancient world knows nothing like this. In fact, the nation of Israel has seen nothing like this. In fact, if Old Testament Israel would take these laws and truly live them out, this would have been the most equitable nation ever on the face of the earth. And as I've said before, there wouldn't even be a close second. But the laws tell us something about the heart of the law giver. What does this tell us about God's heart? about his character, and then how can I make spiritual application from these? Well, the Bible says that apart from Christ, you and I were strangers, we were aliens to God, but in Christ, we too are recipients of God's mercy and compassion. And so here, 
our text teaches us that those saved by God's grace must reflect the compassionate heart of their father. We're going to cover this in four simple ways. We'll talk about family matters and then religious matters, care for the disadvantaged, and then care for truth and right. We'll start with family matters. In reality, verses 16 and 17 are something like transitional verses. Last week, we studied uh, property issues, uh, compensation, personal responsibility. We're transitioning from laws about social responsibility. And then verse 16 and 17 sort of serve like a bridge. They, they address the seventh and the eighth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. What's going on here with the term bride price? It's cultural. It's not as if a father is selling his daughter off. It is, in fact, quite the opposite. It's not minimizing her value. It's actually indicating this is a woman of great value and worth. She can't just be had. So Doug Stewart says the bride price requirement involves the families in formal negotiations. It shows that something very serious and important is at stake. So take a look at verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who's not be- who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Meaning, if a man does things out of order and sleeps with a young woman before he marries her, he can't leave her. This is not rape. There are other laws that address rape, and it's really serious. This is actually an issue of premarital consensual sex. This is a law that says, here's what you must do if you take things out of God's order. And the law is meant to make sure that the, that the young woman, no longer a virgin, is not left defrauded. You should understand, marriage is always seen in the Bible as a covenant relationship. And so in much the same way that the rainbow is for Noah the sign of the covenant, in the same way that circumcision is for Abraham a sign of the covenant, in the same way that baptism serves as a sign of the new covenant for us in Christ, that sexual union of a husband and a wife is a sign of this covenant relationship. So here's a law that says you cannot take the sign of the covenant sex without actually entering into a lifelong covenant commitment. Unless you are committed to her in marriage, she may in fact be someone else's wife. Therefore, it's adultery. To fail to give the father The bride price for this young woman is to say, I'm stealing your daughter. I don't think enough of you. I certainly don't think enough of her to even acknowledge that I'm a thief. That's just what I am. And God says, well, if you do things out of order, you're still going to take responsibility. You either marry her and live as a responsible man, or if her father thinks that you're such a scoundrel and he wouldn't trust you with her, then the bride price is going to compensate her as a young woman and her family because you have taken advantage of her. And so in the ancient world, it would be harder for this young woman to find another husband. And so the bride price is simply a way of saying, I'm willing to step up, I'm willing to take care of her. This is what I give in meaning I'm serious And it was supposed to pay for the marriage to acknowledge this is serious and important. And it happens before sex. What does this tell us about the heart of God? 
about his character? How do we make spiritual application from this? I mean, you and I live in a world that's very different from the ancient world. Here's what it tells us. Women are precious and they are valuable. And they are to be treated with dignity and respect as image bearers of God. More than that, it says that sex is precious and valuable. And it says, men, you too are are precious and valuable. And if you treat young women as objects, it will inherently degrade your manhood. Because anytime you treat other people as something less than humans, it is a reflection of your own lack of dignity. I'll give you a silly example. If you treat the gas station attendant or the cashier at Walmart in a manner that is disrespectful and rude, and you think to yourself, well, I'm treating them that way because in some ways I really am better than them. Or I'm just not going to be patient enough to tolerate their ignorance. In every occasion where you do something like that, it actually doesn't say much about their character. It always says something about yours or lack thereof. In fact, in all of those circumstances where you treat someone else as less than human, you're always the one who walks away looking like the fool. I know. I've been the fool a lot. Young people, God intended for you to see marriage as sacred and sex as beautiful and valuable. He intended that because he knows that you will inherently value those things which are costly You don't actually have to have a bride price system woven into your culture. Marriage is still considered costly. And you are too valuable. You are too precious to be treated or to treat others as anything less than beautiful and valuable. Guys, whether you know that girl casually or you've been dating her for many years, you are very much responsible for how you treat her. Girls in a dating relationship, he's accountable to God for how he treats you. And so, young girls, the Bible says that you are valuable and you are costly and you are worthy of careful, respectful, patient pursuit. You be who God made you to be in dignity and in value. And the little boys will run off and find somewhere else to play. But the men... The men will rise up and they'll learn to be patient, respectful men who pursue with care. Likewise, guys, if a girl throws herself at you, it seems flattering for a moment, but it actually says more about what she thinks of herself And how much of a sucker she thinks you might be. Do not chase girls who chase you. Learn to be men of careful, patient, respectful pursuit. Sex and marriage are important in God's eyes. Not only because God created them. But because of how it reflects his relationship to his church. Here's a God of tenderness, 
who pursues his bride as if she's the most valuable treasure on the face of the earth. And his pursuit of his people is is careful and it's patient and it's completely honorable and it's always for her good. Those saved by God's grace must reflect the compassionate heart of their father. Those are the family matters. Now let's turn and look at the religious matters. And it hits us in some ways like a punch in the nose with rapid fire succession. You get these three verses that seem entirely disconnected. And yet all of them come with the death penalty. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. And you remember that I told you several weeks back, anytime you encounter something in the Bible that seems so bizarre and perhaps disgusting that you are left perplexed, quite often what God is doing is saying, take a look at the pagan nations. Notice how they live. Not here. Not among my people. Do not live like the pagans around you. By my grace, I've actually made you something entirely new. A sorceress is a woman who practices fortune-telling, claims to have supernatural power to know the, f- the future. She's actually just dealing in demonic powers. And then the concept of lying with an animal. It's exactly as gross and silly as it sounds. Why does God need to say that? Because it's happening in the ancient world, in the nations around Israel. Canaanite fertility rituals, some pagans would have engaged in these practices in a way to get their gods to do what they wanted them to do. Grow for us more crops, give us more children, but what inherently happens is it lowers the human being from the place of dignity to the place of animals, and it also distorts God's intention for human sexuality. This is utterly pagan, says God. And then he says, don't tolerate sacrifices to false gods because the Lord is the only true God. And so in Israel and in the church, we're called by God to serve the one who has saved us. What do these three verses tell us about God's heart, about his character? How do we make spiritual application here? Well, the people of Israel lived in a single nation. You and I, as Christians, no longer live in a single nation, and yet the church is now the gathering of God's people. So we obviously don't put people to death as they did in the Old Testament who do such things. But you see God's point. These are actually spiritual matters. These death penalty issues tell us that these religious matters in the context of the covenant community were supposed to protect the rest of the covenant community from an evil pagan influence. You put them to death so that they do not continue to infect the nation and lead them away from truth and right worship. How do you handle that today? We don't have to drive up 280 and kill Sister Sally who's practicing sorcery. Please don't do that. Now the church is gifted by God with this helpful instruction called church discipline. And so we don't put to death the people within the body, but we do tell them, you are living like a pagan. And with careful, thoughtful, prayerful direction, they must be removed from the community if they choose to stubbornly persist in living as unbelievers. Unbelievers. 
those saved by God's grace must reflect the compassionate heart of the Father. So we've done family matters, religious matters. Now let's look at care for the disadvantaged. I want to ask you to notice the structure that's here in the Bible. It actually tells us how to understand this passage. Notice chapter 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then you also go over to 23, verse 9, and you notice that it says roughly the same thing. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, the Hebrew language, which of course is a language written without any exclamation marks, without any punctuation, here's a structure which is doing something, trying to set up a kind of of brackets. And in, in those brackets, it makes a very profound and clear statement. But then the brackets do something else, too. They actually point us to look to the middle of the section. What's the profound statement in the brackets? It is this, you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. It's a fact. You were lost. You were enslaved. You were oppressed. Here's the beauty. I saved you by grace. You're saved by grace. And so both sides of the bracket declare that same message. People in the Old Testament are saved from their sins and their bondage and their oppression in the same way that people in the New Testament are saved from their sins and their bondage and their oppression by grace through faith in the Lord. They knew his name is Yahweh. And now you know him as he has revealed himself in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how God saves sinners, by grace. Here's how you figure out what's going on in the text. You're saved by grace. And then everything in the middle is an instruction on how to live in view of this bracket of grace. Old Testament people of God, New Testament people of God, verse 21 through 27, excuse me, 28, saved by grace. Here are some laws to help you care for those who are disadvantaged. What's a sojourner? It's an alien, meaning a person who is not from here. Don't be looking for Martians. In fact, it's just simply a a word to say. These are people who are not exactly like you. And 430 years enslaved in Egypt, you, nation of Israel, you understand what it means to be not from around here. You know very, very much what it's like when it's you who isn't like the other people around you. So then why does he tell them to look upon the sojourner with compassion? Because in this world, you are to reflect the character of the God who made you. And take a look at his character. That's actually why it's pointing you to the the center of the text. Verse 27, the very last sentence. For I'm compassionate. Foreigners in the ancient world lacked citizenship, which meant they usually lacked the ability to, to make their own case in legal disputes. And then he adds to the list widows and orphans and the poor. And it's a perfect list in the ancient world. If you want to take advantage of somebody, these are the people you target. They're also the same people that would be at risk today. In the ancient world, women are not legally represented in cases of disputes, except if they are connected to a man who is their husband or their father. And so a woman with no husband, with a father who is deceased, has no representation in legal standings. And so if you want to sue someone and take the things that they have, you should go after the widow. You'll get her. 
You'll be able to steal everything she has. Moreover, a woman in the ancient world cannot own land. How are you going to grow crops if you do not own land? She has no voice in community matters. And so what happened then is regardless of age, she's left to work and earn her own money. Quite often people would exploit that. You're 80, well sit here and work. Orphans too. Children with no parents in the ancient world, they're easily exposed to those who would take advantage of them. They may in fact be kidnapped or forced into servanthood. Regardless of age, you work the longest hours that I want you to work until I'm done. And all you get is food. And then, of course, the poor. And all of these laws which are meant to address the common practices that greedy people might make in order to take advantage of the poor, people in desperate situations. You have measures of lending practices, taking collateral from someone else when they need that collateral in order to live. Don't take away their coat. It's freezing outside. God says all the oppression that exists in the pagan world, it must not exist here. It simply cannot. You see, you cannot be saved by grace and fail to care for the disadvantaged. Which is why the language in verse 21 through 28 is so incredibly strong. You shall not wrong a sojourner, oppress a widow, mistreat any widow or fatherless. In short, God says, I will not tolerate any exploitation of anyone among my people. And if it happens and it is serious enough, which is the point of, if I hear their cry to me, verse 23 and 27, God says, I will have to ruin you in response. That sounds harsh. If that sounds harsh, it's because God's character is is meant to be revealed through his people. And exploitation tells a lie about God's mercy and compassion. I want you to think about how many covenant blessings have been told to the Hebrew people. God says, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Fruit trees that are constantly cranking out fruit. Grain fields that are full. But this is an example of a covenant curse. It's it's a threat. It's a massive warning. If you will not live in view of the grace that I've given to you, then I will have to bring upon you my wrath. Verse 24, I'll kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, your children fatherless. In fact, this is exactly what happens. So many of the prophets say, there's a problem in my people. You're stepping on your own people. You're crushing the weak. Let's be really clear now as we transition to application. That is that the U.S. federal government is not national Israel. And it would always be a failure for the church to entrust to the federal government the ministries of compassion. It doesn't mean that they have no place in supporting justice. But there is not a political party in the history of the world, not in the United States, not in any other nation that's ever existed, that truly and fully represented the heart of God. And so God's people as individuals who gather together in the church are the ones who are meant to represent the heart of God to the world. This is why our church supports ministries like RUF International and Campus Outreach International because we have sojourners who are walking through the college campus every single day. 
And if you wonder, how can I be a part of helping to care for those sojourners and the aliens at a personal level, I would encourage you to have a conversation with Michael Alsop or Kelly Alsop. And I suspect that they could show you, here's some ways that you could partner with us in this important work. Caring for the weak is the reason that some of you uh, support personally Women's Hope or Christian adoption agencies. Because you do not want the plight of the woman to be left to the world to take care of. You do not want orphans wandering the streets with no with no care. And so you want to welcome the internationals into our worship service. You want to care for the widows who are in this congregation because it is personal. I didn't cry when I wrote this. It's so personal that it must begin within the walls of the church. And then you think about ministries in the area that do similar works. Structure of the text is telling us how to interpret it. And those brackets are making a point. You're saved by grace. But then what sits in the middle, in the center, is another concept that God wants to drive home. If you take a look at verse 29 through 31, God says, When I give you something, whether it's a harvest or animals or even your own children, I want you to open your hands and consecrate them back to me. And so in the case of grain or animals, that would be given back in the form of gifts and sacrifices. In the case of children, (coughs) it is simply symbolic. Lord, thank you for giving us all we have. We open our hands and we give it back to you. Here's the point. The whole thing is driving to verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me. In other words, live as those who are saved by grace. I want your whole heart And so every instruction in the Bible flows from his compassionate heart. First he saves you and then he summons you to live as those who have been changed. Those saved by grace must reflect the compassionate heart of the Father. So you have family matters, religious matters, care for the disadvantaged. Finally, care for truth and right. Verses 1 through 3 and 6 through 9 are addressing the same issue and that is speaking truth. It's a further application of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear witness against your, false na- against your neighbor. For God's people to live in a just society, they've got to be the people who speak the truth. Who can be trusted with that. And so here's an instruction not to spread lies, not to tear others down, not to jump in with the crowd to destroy another person's reputation, not to treat people who are weak as weak or with contempt. Here's instructions. Don't favor the cool. Don't favor the wealthy. Don't favor the strong just because of what they can do for you. In fact, all things that are relevant at the junior high lunch table and the church youth group are always relevant for you and me. God's saying, do not pervert justice by telling lies. You don't have to go to court to pervert justice You can pervert justice by telling a secret, whispering something behind your hand and tearing someone else down. So I wonder if you've taken someone else's reputation and you've made sure that in your hands it was torn apart and it is not a physical act of violence. God says you can do it with a quiet word and you can do it with a lie. 
and you can destroy another person because you feel insecure yourself and you want to be loved by those people that you think are important. God says, if you understand that I'm a God of compassion, then you will understand that I expect those who have received my compassion to serve it up generously to those who are around them. I wonder if there are people around you in your church or in your school or in your work or in in your social settings that are in fact marginalized. They're standing far off. They're insecure. They're frail. And you could go ahead and finish them off with your cruel words or with your lies. I don't know what's wrong with her. She's so weird. That's my teenage girl voice. (laughs) That dude's a dork. That's my teenage boy voice. But in both cases, you recognize what's happening, don't you? God's way is actually so much more life-giving. You consider the weak. You consider the hurting. You consider those who are suffering around you. You consider the forgotten. You consider the friendless And you, you're the ones who can speak words of life to them. Why would you do that hard thing? Well, you would do that hard thing because actually that's the way that God speaks to you in Christ. And verse 4 and 5 deals with doing the right thing toward everyone, even your enemy. It's akin to Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. So these are specific instructions on how to love others well. And the common thread in verses 4 and 5 is this. It says, you see someone who is your enemy, who's done you wrong in the past. You do not use this as an opportunity to dump it back on his head. Dump it back on her head. You don't leave them with a sense that I hate you still. And I hope it hurts. You cannot do that. You cannot do that because God has not treated you that way. God says, you belong to me, and I came to you when you were stuck, and I was compassionate and gracious to you. You've actually seen my heart. Now, if there is anything in you that's ever been moved by my compassionate heart, then reflect my heart. See, God's commanding a gospel response even in the middle of Old Testament laws. Live in light of who the Lord is and in how he's treated you. Compassionate and gracious. What kind of church do you want to live in? What kind of friend group do you want to run with What kind of culture do you want to create around you? God's people are meant to lead in this way. So that we, saved by grace, might shine brightly. And we might reflect the glory of a God of grace and compassion. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your character, which is richly revealed here. We pray that you would cause your word 
to land in our hearts. Teach us to see you and your heart of compassion and to live in light of who you are. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You have been